Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good used the evening. Wrong this is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us on a new night for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective, perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is Episode 13, State of Illinois versus Talia Fonts and Shan Fieldman. In July 2012, 2010, Fonts and Fieldman launched a plot to find a hitman to kill Shan's ex-wife, Shelley, due to her claims against him for unpaid child support. Fieldman was careful in his interactions with the woman who became a police informant to foil his plot. We'll also talk about the events leading up to July 23rd meeting between Fieldman and the hitman, the arrest of Fonson Fieldman, the evidence against them, and Fieldman's successful federal habeas appeal with the help of Kathleen Zellner. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Very well. I'm I'm looking forward to our first Sunday show. Absolutely. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. I I think it's going to be it definitely is a lot less stressful. Um because I had all day yesterday and all day today with no other commitments. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, to prepare, so to give you to, to get you a little bit uh, a little bit of help. So definitely glad to uh, <laughs> glad to go ahead and uh, go ahead and get this taken care of, and you know, make sure that we can help you out a little bit more as well. Yeah, and I'd love to hear from the listeners if they like the Sunday night time slot. Uh, if they think it is too late on a Sunday night, because we're actually in Monday now. We're actually what now? You realize we're in Monday. Because Sunday is is kind of transitioning into Monday. 
Yeah, true. I mean, you're right about that. But I mean, we go eight to ten on Tuesdays, so hopefully the hopefully this will actually be better for our listeners. But yeah, absolutely. Feel free to uh, give us a comment or leave us a message on our Facebook page and let us know what you think about the change. Yeah, because I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem with trying to go a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, we can maybe think about it and see see what the listeners absolutely. think. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so tonight, it while it seems like a lot in the outline, it's really, it's just there's a lot of information that I want to make sure that I I bring in. Mm-hmm. Because. In my humble opinion, Fieldman's entire defense was BS. Right. And I still cannot believe that the federal court actually fell for it. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Hey, sometimes, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Even a black clock finds that every so once in a while. Right. Or a stop clock is right twice a day. And there you go. Well, I guess because now they have all digital clocks, so people aren't used to hearing that one again anymore. <laughs> Ooh, good morning. Good morning. Hitting, hitting, a, uh, hitting the old crowd there. <laughs> yep. Yep. My generation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, one of the good one of the drawbacks is that this case did not get a lot of media attention. So there really is not a lot of information about either Fonts or Fieldman online. Yeah. Background line. When I was looking to go do some research and stuff, I noticed, man, not even a Murderpedia page, not a Wikipedia page, nothing for either of them. Just a couple uh, news stories, and that's about it. Correct. And they were pretty much limited to the 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 Pontiac, Illinois, Column, Illinois, and I think um, there was one other town in Illinois Fieldman's wife lived in. And Yeah, exactly. Um, it exactly. was like that that part news, of Illinois. No, no CNN, yeah. no uh no CNNs, no major newscasts at all. Correct. So, um although I do know that Fieldman did have privately retained counsel at least through his trial. Okay. So, I think he had family that had some money. Mm-hmm. But that's speculation because, again, there's just not a lot of information available. Uh, so what what's pertinent to this or relevant to this discussion is uh, he married Shelley in around, I believe, sometime in the late 1990s. I saw one date said mm-hmm. 99, but they have a son who would have been born in 1997. Okay. So I don't know whether they were married before he was born or whether they got married after he was born, at around the time their daughter was born. Um, 
They divorced in 2002. Initially, it was very amicable. In fact, Mm -hmm. Shan was working in New Orleans. He was an electrician, and he was a member of the Electricians' Union. He was working in New Orleans, and Alan, the boyfriend of Shelley, and I'm only going to refer to them by their first names. Their last names appear in the court records and the news articles, etc. But because they were targets of a murder-for-hire plot, I'm going to, you know, try to maintain a little bit of anonymity for them by not right. repeating their last names. Um, and I also did not find—I didn't find pictures online, but I wasn't going to post pictures of them anyway because they had been, you know, targets of a murder-for-hire plot. So, okay. again, initially it was amicable, but apparently Fieldman lost his job and while he was a member of a union and there were some benefits financially for him as far as pay when he was laid off he did not have the income that he was used to and apparently he fell behind in child support now there's also it's interesting in one of the child support orders, there's also something about him having to notify the court when he changes jobs. So there may have been a period of time when he was leaving jobs to prevent garnishment. Mm-hmm. The, the child support okay. issues became very contentious. And by 2010, Shelley was trying to collect about $30,000 in back support. Hmm. And she was bringing Shan back to court. Right. Um, He was on unemployment, and apparently part of his unemployment was being garnished. And when he started working, his – when he was working, his wages were being garnished. And he apparently wasn't happy about that. Right. Because it was eating into his ability to maintain the lifestyle to which he had become accustomed, apparently, and to maintain his quote-unquote fiancé in the lifestyle to which she was becoming accustomed. Um, And so that led to some very angry text messages sent by Shan to Shelley in May and June. Now, um, while that was, while the child support case was resolved sometime in June, I cannot believe, in light of those text messages, which were very, some of them were downright threatening. You're going to get yours. You're going to get what you deserve. Hmm. I'm going to be sure of that that kind of stuff, I don't see how Shan would have just brushed it off and forgotten all about it. I I don't believe that that's possible because I believe that that would have stuck in his crawl. Um, And he would have have not only stayed angry, but gotten angrier and angrier and angrier. So uh, one day in July, and the records 
that are available don't really specify when, although it's probably the second week in July, after the 4th of July. Uh, Trina Bennett, Clyde McBride, and Heather Sanders are at Trina's house. When Talia calls, Talia Fonts, um, she calls Trina and asks to come by, if she and Shan can come by. And this may have been to get pain pills because Talia may have had a an addiction to pain pills. Uh, as you probably know, 2010, 2011, 2012 was the beginnings of the opioid crisis in the United States. With right, right, absolutely. Um, pain clinics and all these things popping up, and you know, people basically going in and saying, "My back hurts," and they get, you know, 90 days worth of uh, OxyContin which is a very, right, very, right. very strong pain reliever um, meant for ca- cancer patients. Yeah. Um, and so, and and one of the problems with the prescription medication addiction is that people think because it's prescribed by a doctor, it can't, you can't become addicted. You aren't addicted. It's not bad. You're not, it's not like you're shooting heroin. Um, although sometimes when you can't get the opioids, that's where you end up. Um, so I think Talia may have had a problem with, with pain medication. Again, okay, that makes sense. speculating solely based on a statement that Shan made during his testimony uh, when he was being tried. So they mm-hmm. get there, and then Shan and Talia are talking about killing Shelley in front of Trina, Clyde, and Heather. Talia says she's looking for someone to kill the bitch. Um, Talia tells hmm. them that she got $1,500 $1, selling her car to fund the hit. Uh, Trina claims that Shan offered her $10,000 to find somebody to kill Shelly or to kill Shelly herself. Um, and there was... Uh, apparently he had offered somebody $10,000, but then couldn't come up with that money. Mm-hmm. And that may have been while the while the child support case was going on. Because that's when her, Shelly's death, would have benefited him most. Because that would have ended the child support issue and probably ended the arrears issue as well. Right. Um, so the next day, Shan and Trina return, and in talking, and this is in front of, I think, Trina and Clyde, uh, Heather was probably there as well, um, Shan says that he doesn't care if the kids are there, he doesn't care if they're killed. No, bang them. Um, and then in the ensuing days or weeks, Trina was, uh, Tr- Talia was frequently calling Trina to follow up on her progress. Heather, Trina, mm-hmm. and Clyde all went to the police. Uh, they, they felt that Shan and Talia were serious. Uh, Trina said that she was trying to keep them from going through with finding a hitman. And so she became an informant, which would kind of put her in control of the plot. 
Um, Shan had given her, and this is another thing that, you know, in light of the claims made by Shan later, doesn't make sense. If, if he never had any intent to kill Shelly, if this was all Trina's doing, why would he give Trina a false name for himself and for Shelly? The problem is, is that he gave Trina his real phone number. And so when Trina went to the police, police were able to identify him through his phone number. And they got a warrant to, to record Shan's phone calls. And then Trina was acting as a an informant, so she was contacting Shan. And frequently, she was contacting Shan. Right. And sometimes he didn't answer her, call her back. Um, mm-hmm. there were a few times when she called and Trina would answer and they would stop recording while Trina was on the, while Talia was on the phone. They're T and T. I'm going to con- mix their names up. I apologize in advance. Right. While Talia was on the phone, they didn't record those conversations because their warrant was not for Talia. Their warrant was for Shan. Right. And so they wouldn't turn the recorder on until Shan was on the phone. And so they recorded several phone calls. The last two, uh, the the first call recorded on the 22nd, 2010, Jan- July 22nd, 2010, um, Trina is kind of filling Shannon on where things stand as far as the, finding the hitman. Um, he never says, I'm not interested, I don't want to do this, stop calling me. In that right. recorded call, um, his responses to Trina are vague. They're cagey, but they never negate mm-hmm. intent. They only give him a, a a level of plausible deniability. Right. Later on, um, and he agrees that when he meets with the hitman the following day, he's going to bring two hundred dollars to the down payment. So if you never had any intent in the first place, then why in a recorded call are you not expressing, um, and especially in light of his later testimony in which he claimed to have said those exact words during other conversations that weren't recorded. Um, And then on the 23rd, there's another recorded call between Shan and Trina in which Shan agrees to a 7 p.m. meeting in Pontiac with the hitman. He assures Trina he's not going to back out, and he agrees to the location in the Walmart parking lot in Pontiac, Michigan. And Walmart needs to, you know, make it unhospitable for people to meet and plot murders in their parking lots. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't the first case that I've seen go down in a Walmart parking lot. So, ha, ha, ha. I'm just trying to be funny. Of course. I mean, <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't wrong. I mean, by any stretch of your imagination, I'm just saying. I, I mean, you know, they got, they've got to get their, they got to beef up their surveillance 
more signs that tell people you're under surveillance, maybe something that adds, and we will give that surveillance to the police in a heartbeat. Um, so if you're up to no good, keep going. Go to a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> so then later that evening, um, they're apparently in Pontiac. And so Shan goes to the Walmart. And he meets with Trina, I believe, briefly. She introduces him to the hitman. And then she leaves and he gets in the truck with the hitman. The meeting, of course, is on video, and every word was recorded. Um, Shan tells the hitman that his ex-wife is a big problem that he wants taken care of. He agrees that he, want his ex- he wants his ex-wife whacked. Uh, he says Talia wants the hit done as badly as he does. He bargains the hitman down to a $100 down payment, claiming that he's really cash poor right now. He apparently contacted Talia on the hitman's phone so that he could get cash from her. He leaves and goes to get the money. And he's under surveillance, so he's followed to an address, which I think was Talia's grandfather's house. Because uh, she's in Pontiac because her grandfather's apparently dying at this time. And right. he gets $100. He comes back, gives 100 bucks to the hitman, and tells the hitman how he knows what the money's for. Uh, during the meeting, he also draws a diagram of the house in which Shelly, the children, and Alan live. He describes Shellen. Shelly, Allen, and the children describes their physical appearances to the hitman. He tells the hitman that Shelly and Allen hang out in their garage. He tells the hitman he'll pay $5,000 for the hit on Shelly and $2,500 for the hit on Allen. For some reason, if the hitman doesn't have to kill two people, he agrees to $4,500 for <laughs> Shelly and Shelly only. Right. And he gives the hitman an IOU for $7,400, but he signs it Joe Smith. So, again, he's using a fake name, which gives him some plausible deniability. Right. Should the evidence fall into the hand of police. Right, right. Um, and, you know, again, listeners, if you're planning a murder and you meet with someone who's a hitman that's willing to do it on credit, that bargains down to uh, bargain basement dirt cheap prices, you're probably mm-hmm. dealing with a police officer. And you should immediately say, you know what, I do not want to do this. I have changed my mind. This was a bad idea. And I'm going to go on with my life and never sin anymore. And that's, you know, how you get yourself out from being the defendant. Um, right. And so when the hitman tells Shan this will be done in a week, he doesn't say, wait a second. Okay, wait, I don't want to do this. This is a bad idea. No, he doesn't say no. He says, okay, sure. <laughs> now, so he leaves Walmart. He goes back to Talia's grandmother, grandfather's house in Pontiac. And he apparently picks up Pontiac, uh, her kids 
because her grandfather's dying. She wants to stay there, so he's going to take the kids back to Cullum where they live, which is about about 35 minutes away. Um, right. Oddly enough, that 35 minutes is a journey that makes no sense to Shan Fieldman. Because in somewhere in one of his defenses is, why would he go all the way over to Pontiac? It's 35 minutes away. But he was there because Talia's grandfather was dying. Otherwise, he would have never gone over to Pontiac. So, um, So, later that evening, Shan is arrested in traffic stop with Talia's kids in the car. Uh, When Talia goes to the station to pick up her kids and is questioned and makes some admissions about her part in the plot, she is also arrested. And within a few days, uh, Talia was charged with one count of solicitation to commit murder for hire. Shan was also charged with one count of solicitation to commit murder for hire. And in uh-huh. August, that was amended to add for two counts because he had a, he had solicited the murder of both Shelley and Allen. Uh-huh. Right. So Talia went to trial first. And as I said, Shan um, entered a not guilty plea on the first count. Apparently, when the, the count was amended, his counsel was present, he was represented, his counsel waived reading um, and waived formal arraignment and did not enter a formal plea on the new indictment or information, uh, which he would bring up later as a flaw. Um, but aside from that, he was represented, He the public defender had been appointed, but private counsel came in and public defender was released. So he had private counsel. Um, And I'm guessing that whoever represented Talia and his counsel, they had a really hard road to hoe because there are at least two recorded phone calls and the video of Shan meeting with the hitman. So Talia's trial was first in November of 2010, and the prosecution had the testimony of Clyde, Heather, and Trina. And a lot of stuff is made later in post-conviction in the federal habeas case about Trina, which we'll get into when we talk about Shan's trial. But Mm -hmm. what was kind of disappointing on the part of the state was in federal habeas, they did not highlight the fact that a lot of the statements made by Shan were made not only to Trina, but to Claudia and Heather. Right. So, um, and then Candler, Candler was the undercover cop. Just going to give his last name, not his first name. Uh, And the video of the Shan's meeting with the hitman. Uh, Mm -hmm. Talia's defense basically she did testify and her defense was basically that she didn't think Shan was serious and that she told him she didn't agree with him 
unfortunately, that did not raise any doubt in the jurors' minds, and she was convicted. And after a motion for new trial was denied, uh, in which she raised the issue about the uh, admission of the video of Shan violating confrontation clause, um, which was denied in January of 2011, she was sentenced in January 2011 to 35 years. I think the the sentencing was 20 to 40 years on solicitation to commit murder right. for hire. So she was sentenced at 35 years. And I think more likely than not, a part of it was um, the fact that in this plan, the kids became targets. Right. And, I mean, Shelly, Allen, and the kids testified in the sentencing hearing. And this had an impact on their life. And, you know, face it, they're going to spend their lives looking over their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Because if he's done it once, he could do it again. Sure. Uh, and if she's done it once, she could do it again. And especially if she thinks that they, you know... Uh, they had some part in in her ending up where she is. So their fear is not unreasonable. Um, Then later on uh, in February of 2011, she filed a motion to reconsider her sentence, basically arguing that the potential sentence that Shan faced, which was 20 to 40 years on two counts, uh, was disparate with the sentence she received of 35 years. Well, he hadn't even been tried yet, so he hadn't been sentenced. So she can't really argue disparity when there is no actual sentence with which to compare her sentence. Um, Then she went on to direct appeal, because that was denied in June of 2011. She filed her direct appeal. Uh, Basically, the only two things that she argued was, first, that um, the court erred in admitting the video of Shannon the Hitman uh, that it was a violation of the Confrontation Clause. But the appellate court found that Shan's statements in the video were statements of a co-conspirator and met the co-conspirator exception. So there was no right. in the trial court's discretion in entering it. So, so I need you to explain that one to me. Like, why would it make sense that she couldn't show the video? Uh, like, that's the no. hardest evidence you could you could get, correct? Well, the, the she didn't want to show the, the video. She wanted the video excluded. And the trial court ruled that it was a co-conspirator. It fell under a co-conspirator exception okay. and was admissible at her trial. Right even though it's an out-of-court statement by Shan, right. not testimony by Shan. Um, but right. again, it, it, was, it fell under an exception and was therefore admissible. Um, she, ar- she tried to argue why it wasn't under a co-conspirator exception or any other exception, but the appellate court did not find any merit into any of our arguments and Again, found no abuse of the trial court's discretion in admitting the evidence. 
The other issue that she raised was that her 35-year sentence was excessive. And she kind of raised various grounds, including that um, the court didn't take her rehabilitative potential into account, which makes absolutely no sense. She had one, um, one criminal conviction for filing a false report, um, but no other criminal record, per se. Um, right. Although, again, I, I think there was, a, there was a substance abuse issue going on with her at the time. Um, and another thing that she raised, which really I think is offensive, is to say nobody was hurt. Nobody was physically hurt, but four people were scarred emotionally. Right. That may, wow. So, um, and that uh, that the court should not have heard four victim impacts because there were no victims. Wow, that makes no sense. In my um, so. Yeah, that's kind of grasping at straws for me. Yeah, uh, but the so. the appellate the appellate court found that those challenges had been waived because they weren't presented in her motion to reconsider to the trial court, and so her time to her time to challenge her sentence was was gone. And so then her sentence, her conviction and sentence became final in 20, uh, January of 2013 because she didn't file a, a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court. Right, right. Um, so then Shan went to trial in May of 2011. And... Uh-huh. Of course, the prosecution had Candler, the recorded calls, and the video of the meeting with Candler. Now, oddly enough, they weren't calling Trina Mm -hmm. to the stand. And I don't know exactly why they chose not to do that unless there was something in her cross-examination during Talia's trial or something about her testimony during Talia's trial that made the prosecution think that she wasn't going to make a good witness for Shan? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. Um, and, and it may have been, I mean, Trina was a, a character, I would say. Um, she was my age. She was born in 60, so she was four years older than I am. But she was in my generation, so she was a little bit older than Shan and, and Talia. Um, right. And it sounds like she was the source for Talia's pills. Um, she apparently bragged about committing crimes. So maybe during her, during her testimony in Talia's trial, maybe the state just said something came out on cross-examination that the state didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and contrary to what a lot of people believe, just as a defense doesn't have to call every single possible witness, 
the state doesn't have to call every single possible witness. If you have a witness that says, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be involved. And it could have been Trina doing that as well. Um, Then you're not going to call them. Mm-hmm. And you're not. There's no. There's no requirement that the state call every witness. So, and they didn't really need her because they had, you know, the recorded phone calls that they could get in through the police witnesses because the police were the ones who actually did the the recording um, and right. obtained the warrant, et cetera. And the video of the meeting with Cameron, which in and of itself is the strongest evidence against. Fieldman, exactly. and was the strongest evidence against Trina. I mean Talia. So uh, on defense, you literally have no video. Yeah, you literally have the entire crime on video. So uh, Shan testifies on his behalf, on his own behalf, and. Basically, what he wants to do is say that because Trina told me all these horrible things that she's done, I was afraid for my life. I was afraid for my family's life. She badgered me. She told me she stole lottery tickets and cigarettes from a grocery store. She told me she robbed an elderly man, tied him to a chair, and shot him in the head in front of her son. Um, She badgered Shan about the hit. She demanded money from him. She tried to bully him into meeting with the hit man um, on another time. Um, And like I said, I don't think any of these conversations or phone calls where this was allegedly said was – were recorded. Uh-huh. Um, and he claimed in some of these calls to tell her, look, I don't want to do this. I never wanted to do this. You want to do this. Stop wanting to do this. Leave me alone. Don't call me. I don't, I'm not interested. Go away. Uh, but again, those phone calls weren't recorded. And when he was recorded, those words never came out of his mouth. Um, right. He also claimed that Trina was going to kill Shelly for free. Uh, he claimed that she broke into his house around July 13th while he was with Talia having a medical procedure. Talia was having a medical procedure and he was with her. Um, he claimed money and um, some other things were stolen, but apparently it was never reported which makes no sense to me mm-hmm. because if she broke in your house and you know it's her, you call the police and you say, look, this woman's been trying to set me up for a murder for hire. And now she broke into my house and she stole money. Completely. Um, Completely. So, uh, and then later when he met with Candler and Trina's not even freaking there, he says he was afraid cause he was in a truck with a killer. And it's like, dude, you wanted this meeting with the killer. You could claim now that you didn't, but that's not what Heather and uh, Clyde say. Heather and Clyde say, you wanted a hitman. 
you asked Trina for a hitman, and she got you one. Um, and then he said the hitman told him that his own ex-wife had died in a, quote, accident. Or that his own ex-wife died when she met an unfortunate accident or something along those lines. Um, I don't think that that statement appears on the video. <coughs> Mm, okay. okay. Um, and if it does appear on the video, I don't think Shan's reaction was one of shock and dismay. I looked and looked and looked, and I could not find the video. Okay. Um, so I mean, I during Shan's testimony, yeah, uh, during Shan's testimony, the state objected when, basically, when Shan tried to testify about statements made by Trina. Because that's hearsay. That's out-of-court statements. Mm-hmm. You know, not under oath, not subject to cross-examination. Yeah. Um, We've talked about that, I don't know how many times, with Rodney, for example. Now, Fieldman's attorney said, argued, that the statements were not being offered to prove that they were true. They weren't being offered to prove that Trina robbed and killed an elderly man, which the defense never produced any corroborative evidence that any such murder ever occurred. Mm-hmm. And they never produced any corroborative evidence of a robbery of a grocery store or a burglary of a grocery store um, where lottery tickets and cigarettes were stolen. Mm-hmm. or that Trina Bennett was ever a suspect in any such cases. Um, so there was no corroboration and there was no indicia of reliability of Trina's statements. Um, they were offering it to prove their effect on Shan's state of mind. Right. But the issue was really one of whether or not when Shan met with the hitman, whether he intended that his ex-wife and Alan be murdered. And the judge did not believe that testimony and statements about Trina Bennett and her actions or even his state of mind as a result of those things was relevant to the issue of his intent to hire a hitman to murder Shelley and Allen. And I do not find any, I don't take any issue with that. It's reasonable, it's logical, it makes sense, especially in light of the lack of corroboration of Trina's statements and the fact that Shan's actions don't support what he claims his state of mind and reasoning were. In other words, uh-huh. he claims, even though he agreed to the meeting, he wasn't really going to go. But they were in Pontiac. Talia's grandfather was dying. He apparently had some time to kill because maybe Talia's family hated his guts. And so he decided, what the hell, I'll go to Walmart and meet Trina and then meet with this hitman, and I'll gather some evidence, and I'll go to the police in the town where Shelley and Alan live, and I'll report this to the police. But then he leaves with the hitman, 
And Talia's like, well, you got to get the kids to bring them home because it's late and I'm going to be staying at my grandfather's because he's dying. So Shan's like, oh, okay, well, then I'll wait and I'll go to the, I'll go to the police in the morning on the 24th. Right. And those horrible, rude police officers arrested him in an inconvenient time before he could take his information to the police. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will admit, uh, during the habeas proceeding, there were a lot of documents filed in the federal court, and I did download the documents, but in printing and preparing my research, I did not print his trial testimony, and I did not print his statements to police. Okay. Um, I basically the the volume of material, the trial testimony was very long, a lot of lot of pages, and looking through the volume of material to try to find the statements that he made to police was something I didn't think was a productive use of time. So I don't know whether in his statement to police he gave them this song and dance about I was I did this to gather evidence to bring it to the police tomorrow. But y'all went and arrested me today. Yeah, um, so it, I mean that's crazy. But it's still it really, still doesn't <laughs> to me it doesn't really make a difference. Whether, you know, whether he was able to testify to that or not. Now, a lot of the information actually did make it into the jury or into his testimony either before state objected or without repeating hearsay from Trina Bennett. Another interesting thing is that Trina Bennett was present in the courthouse. So the defense could have called Trina Bennett and confronted her with these alleged statements. And then if she denied making them, they actually might have been able to get her statements in through Shan as impeachment. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe, possibly. Um, but again, my issue with the with the hearsay statements is that the defense wasn't offering any corroboration to give them any reliability. Hmm. And if you're, you know, if they were playing recorded phone calls from Talia between Talia and Trina at Shan's trial. You can bet hearsay would have been the, the defense's main objection. Good point. Good point. Good point. So, um, sorry, I have to check my battery life every now and then. Oh, no, you're um, fine. your cord, though. Yeah, I did. I, I wiggled it. Let me wiggle it again. Okay, there it goes. How's that? Okay, cool. <laughs> so the court... The court basically excluded most of the hearsay statements and some of the testimony uh, on a relevance issue because it did not find the statements made prior to July 23rd to be relevant to the issue of Fielden's intent. Again, 
I don't disagree. I think that's a reasonable, logical uh, finding. However, um, I will concede that his trial counsel did argue um, that the court was preventing her from providing a complete defense for her client, which will come into play later. So the jury, uh, the verdict, the jury found him guilty. He also filed a motion for new trial and raised all the issues of the evidence excluded by the court and mm-hmm. all the errors that he believed the court uh, the court made during the trial. Um, that was filed on in July of 2011. It was denied in in September of 2011 and. Uh, he was sentenced to two concurrent 36-year terms. Right. One on one 36-year term on each count. Um. So, uh, basically, the long and short of it is that Fieldman argued he was deprived of a defense because material favorable favorable evidence was not allowed. Um, also, the court erred in holding that the state of mind evidence he was trying to offer was tantamount to offering a conclusion defense. Basically, yes, I did it, but somebody made me do it. And Fieldman hmm. didn't want to enter a collusion defense. He wanted to to get to get away with it, so he wanted to make it all Trina's fault. Kind of like Dahlia DiPolito. Right, right. I guess I can see that. Uh, And so um, now one of the comments that the court made as well um, in sentencing, and I just forgot. Oh, well. Don't you hate when you forget? I was I was talking about something and I thought of it and uh dang it, I, I We were forgot. talking about the oh, well, if it, comparison with Dahlia. Yeah. Oh, and the collusion and the pre sentencing report. Basically his version of events in the pre sentencing report was that he was set up by Trina Bennett that, you know, if the police hadn't arrested him on the twenty third he would have gone to police and given them all this great evidence and that, you know, Trina Bennett was the person who should be sitting in jail. And that's probably why the judge gave him two 36-year terms. So he was sentenced to two, concur- he was sentenced to two concurrent terms, one year more than Talia. Okay. I like that. I mean, so our arguments about oh, disparate yeah. sentence became moot. Um, in October of 2011, he filed a motion to reconsider sentence, which raised issues regarding his lack of criminal history, uh, the fact that no physical harm came, but emotional and mental harm did come. Uh, he claimed this is all the court didn't consider his lack of criminal history, that no physical harm, uh, that his age, his character and attitude. But, I mean, his character and attitude is you're saying it's all Trina Bennett's fault, 
and she's the one who should be behind bars, not you. So I don't find that to be a particularly contrite attitude deserving of uh, mitigation of a sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, character, his character and attitude were, okay, I've been convicted. I, I, I really, I should, I let my temper get the better of me. I shouldn't have done this. My poor kids, because now they're scared and scarred for life. Uh, and I've lost them. Uh, and then the, fun, the the court didn't consider the financial impact incarceration would have on the defendant or the disproportionate sentence. So apparently other murder for higher sentences in Illinois were less than um, Fieldman's. However, I would right. be willing to bet that those sentences were guilty pleas. Or cases in which while the defendant took it to a jury and tried to argue lack of intent, once he was convicted, he said, I screwed up. Here's the thing, Lisa. Like, I kind of sort of hate when people are like, well, my sentence is different than theirs. Like, that kind of – I understand, but at the same time, like, not all sentences are created equally, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Because like you said – some people cop yeah. a uh, plea bargain. Some people do all sorts of stuff. You can't compare without knowing the details your sentence to somebody else's. In my in my right, opinion. right. And it's just like you and I have discussed before as well. Um, it doesn't matter whether you stole five dollars or five thousand dollars. You stole. Mm-hmm. Right, And your sentence is based on the fact that you stole and how now, you now, stole. Now I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm sure, court would take into consideration the amount you stole, but yeah, absolutely, I agree. No, I mean, I don't think it, I, I don't think it really does. Yeah, it, it, it takes it, it takes it into account only insofar as some states may have one statute for amounts under a certain amount. And one yeah, statute for amounts exceeding amount. So but as far as sentencing, I can see the point. Okay. You know, it, it's it's really it's that you stole. That's what your sentence is based on. It doesn't matter how much. Right. How you and did it, you know, will matter. Basically, and how you approach it. By, basically, what I meant by that was. Uh, was exactly what you were talking about, the fact that, you know, some of it's a misdemeanor and some of it's a felony, depending on the amount. Right. Or at least in Arkansas. Right. And some of it, some of it's a felony uh, where the possible sentence is under five years, and some of it's a felony where the possible sentence is over 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, but only that's the only time the amount really has any any distinction is if the law distinguishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like, have you seen the um, have you seen the Ashton Kutcher Malakunas Cheeto popcorn commercials? Yes. Where he finds her with the with the Cheeto dust on her fingers, on her right. face, and she says it wasn't me. Right. 
Okay, well, if you have, you know, if you have a defendant who is caught in somebody's house with a $5,000 diamond necklace in his hand and he's arrested and then he tries to say, it wasn't me, I wasn't stealing that, I didn't have a necklace, that person is going to get a more a more lengthy sentence than someone right, who is make, caught and says, I did it. I, you know, I was, I was desperate. I was about to be thrown out of my house. Um, I'm $5,000 behind in my mortgage. I haven't had a job and I'm desperate. And so I did this and it was horrible. It was a horrible thing for me to do. Because as a victim of burglary, it is a, a horrible violation. Mm-hmm. Of your, you know, right, of your privacy in your home. So, um, mm-hmm. so Fieldman's case moved on to direct appeal, and he, for some reason, I guess perhaps the attorney would not raise the issues he wanted to raise, which also gives me the feeling that he is the type that would try to hire a hitman to kill his ex-wife when a, uh, when a, when a child support thing didn't go his way. Uh, he right. pursued his direct appeal pro se. Mm-hmm. And the issues he raised, he raised uh, claim that he was denied a fair arraignment hearing because he wasn't represented by counsel. Arraignment is when one of those times when you're actually appointed counsel. And sometimes counsel's there and sometimes counsel's not there. Uh, and there's no requirement that you be represented by counsel at arraignment. Um, he right. claims that the state made false statements to conceal its lack of judicial determination of probable cause. And that one was pretty much refuted by the record, which showed at the initial appearance after the first charge and the first arrest, um, there was a judicial determination of probable cause. He claimed he was also arrested without probable cause, but... Uh, because he didn't challenge the sufficiency of the evidence of his guilt at his trial, I don't see mm-hmm. how he can allege that his arrest was made without probable cause. Uh, he claimed he was presented a prevented from presenting a defense when evidence was excluded by the trial court, although he didn't argue it as a constitutional issue. Okay. Um, and he argued that the state violated eavesdropping laws and that he received ineffective assistance of counsel. But I don't see that he enumerated in what aspects. Um, in Illinois, they actually don't, um, they don't require or allow ineffective assistance on the trial record because the trial record isn't sufficient. So that was more or less overruled. Uh, the rest yeah. were found to lack any merit. Uh, yeah, they like, basically like affirmed. 
I don't like the fact that he's got an eavesdropping thing because, again, like, I'm assuming this goes once again back to the video, correct? The eavesdropping thing? Uh, it may have uh, it may have actually been the recorded phone call. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, then carry on. But I find, and, and this is interesting, I, 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 I encounter this often listening to a uh, consultant for a criminal defendant who appears on the odd podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes lay people are very narrow-minded in interpreting the law. Right. And they get very fixated on the words of a statute and don't understand that sometimes you have to look beyond those words to see how courts have applied that statute. Um, And I'll give you an example I recently had this with one of the attorneys I work with. He and I had talked about a case in which a workers' comp carrier intervened in a lawsuit that we're defending, even though the date of accident in our case is not the date of injury in the workers' comp case. Right. And he and I, in our talking back and forth, both felt that there was something that wasn't kosher about that. Well, I did some research on my own because I was curious, and I found a case that said that in 1999, the Louisiana legislature, in its wisdom, decided that workers' comp carriers should be able to intervene in any lawsuit even if the date of accident is not the date of injury in the workers' comp claim, if that subsequent accident aggravated the compensable injury. Okay. So basically, I was mistaken. They can intervene even though our date of accident is not their date of injury because there is an allegation that could be made by them, they have to prove it, that the subsequent accident that we're defending aggravated the compensable injury in their workers' comp case. Right. Leading to extension of their of their uh, necessity of paying benefits. Okay. So... And I basically what I did was I provided him with a copy of the statute and I provided him with the case that I found and I said I shepherdized it and there's nothing on point with our case. Um, but, you know, you can look beyond it if you want and then you determine how you want to proceed basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't look at the statute and say, oh, well, it says you can't do it, you can't do it. Because there's a case that says you can. Touche. So, um, so I think that's what happened is he's looking at a statute and he's thinking 
the statute that says this, the state didn't do this, although they did. And so, you know, he's arguing they violated eavesdropping law when they didn't. Basically, his, his conviction and sentence were affirmed on December 11, 2013. He moved for leave to appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, and that was denied September 24, 2014. His conviction and sentence became final on December 23, 2014, because as far as I can tell, he did not seek a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And um, so then he moved into state post-conviction. Now, as far as I can tell, Talia never filed any state post-conviction. Uh, claims. There's nothing in the trial record at Livingston County or Lincoln County or whatever the county is uh, in Illinois. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, so I I don't know. There's no reported opinion. So if she filed something in the trial court and it was decided in the trial court, there's no record of it, and it there's no appellate record, no appellate opinion affirming or or reversing it. Um, So he also, again, pro se, filed the state post-conviction, which in Illinois is Section 2-1401. It was filed on the 14th of March. There was a notice of no proof of service in April of 2014. So the uh, claim was refiled in May of 2014, and he basically argued that his conviction was void due to an error during arraignment and that the court lacked jurisdiction to try him for the two counts because of an error in the arraignment and or the lack of a plea entered on the second amended arraignment. Amended information. Okay. Uh, The state filed its answer on June 12, 2014, and I think it was kind of a combination of basically uh, even an error in arraignment does not deprive the court of jurisdiction, and um, that he did actually enter a plea because his counsel entered a plea of not guilty and sought a jury trial after his uh, amended indictment or information was filed. Um, The trial court dismissed the pro se action in September 11, 2014, and the claim or the appeal was summarily dismissed at the 4th District Court of Appeal on September 22, 2015. Uh, additionally, he didn't seek leave to appeal at the Illinois Supreme Court. Now, somehow or other, I don't know exactly how, he came to the attention of Kathleen Zellner. And so, as she is wont to do, um, she kind of rewrote history. Uh-huh. And she turned Trina Bennett's hearsay statements into vital evidence 
in Shanfield's defense. She argued that the evidence against him wasn't that strong um, and that had a jury had all of this information about Trina Bennett, they never would have found intent to hire a hitman to kill Shelley and Allen. Um, she also rewrote history that he never had the intent and all of the statements that he and Talia made ceased to exist. Right. Never happened. Um, so that was filed in federal court and um, basically argued heavily on constitutional 14th Amendment due process grounds. The state answered, and basically their position was that this was a state evidentiary ruling, not subject to habeas review, because it was excluded evidence based on state state law relevance mm-hmm. rules, um, and that the uh, hearsay statements from Trina Bennett were excluded on valid state law ev- relevance grounds. Now, interestingly, Kathleen Zellner never offered any evidence that proved that anything Trina Bennett said was true. Hmm. Okay. Basically, I guess it doesn't matter whether it was true or not. He believed it to be true, and it had an effect on him. Now, I have a picture of Trina Bennett posted. Um. And I don't know how he could say he was afraid of that woman. When I look at pictures of him, (laughs) if he was really afraid of that woman, he is a wimp. Because she was overweight, she was out of shape, she probably smoked like a chimney. Mm -hmm. Um, And was as we shall see, about a decade shy of a heart attack. Um, So, uh, and again, the state also argued that the trial court's ruling that the evidence wasn't relevant to the issue of Fieldman's intent in the meeting with the hitman, which was the crime that was committed, um, was, you know, was correct. I don't I still don't understand how it happened, why it happened. Uh I don't know anything about the judge. But uh-huh. on March 27th, 2019, I was shocked that relief was granted. And Fieldman's conviction right. was vacated. And the judge ordered Fieldman be released within 60 days. Uh Um, And the only thing I can say is that it is more likely due to, again, Kathleen Zellner's rewriting of history. And I think the state kind of underestimated her. The state could have and should have probably highlighted the testimony from, for example, Claudia and Heather. Uh-huh. 
which had nothing to do with Trina Bennett and clearly showed that Shan Fieldman and Talia Fonts were driving the bus, not Trina. But they kind of kept their they kept their pleadings to their argument. Okay. And kind of they they kind of presented a pared down version of the evidence, similar to right. in the second Dahlia DiPolito trial, where the state presented a pared down version of the evidence and got a hung jury. Um. So uh, basically the the federal district court found that the state court had failed, both state courts rather, the trial court and the appellate court, had failed to properly address the 14th Amendment due process arguments that were raised by trial counsel at trial in her argument to get the evidence in. Uh, they also found that Trina's statements were not hearsay because they weren't being offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because they are kind of being offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted because that's the only reason Fieldman would have to be afraid of Trina. Okay. That they're true. Um, and that her true. statements were being offered to show his state of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the federal district court completely ignored his actions that negated his claims of lack of intent. For example, in the recording with Trina on the 23rd, he doesn't say, why are you calling me? I'm not doing this. Go away. Leave me alone. He doesn't say that on the 22nd, even though in his testimony he claims to have told her that many times. Mm-hmm. Or every time he talked to her. Um, you know, it's kind of like Dahlia DiPolito's testimony in that uh, motion to dismiss hearing. Where her direct testimony said things and then the prosecutor showed her video and recordings, <laughs> played recordings that had her crying on the stand trying to, you know, oh, poor woe is me. Um, right, right. But uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know how that. That I just. I don't know how it was. It was dismaying for me. Um, the state filed a motion to stay uh, on April fifteenth, twenty nineteen, and that was denied by the trial court on May sixteenth, twenty nineteen. Although in the order denying the motion to stay, which would have kept Fieldman in prison. Uh, the judge did set conditions for Fieldman's release uh, that included him being supervised and monitored by the federal parole entity in, I think he was in Pontiac's in one district, the southern district, and he lived in the central district. But if he was going to live in the northern district, he had to notify the northern district and you know he had to be transferred and they had to monitor him. So that was to prevent him, you know, taking flight um, either during the pendency of the appeal or once the appeal was decided one way or the other. Um, uh-huh. And as far as I know, he was released and he was supervised and he 
didn't violate any of the terms, and was a good boy. The case went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal. It was argued on January 16, 2020, and I think I said early uh, early 2020. I was mistaken. That was the oral argument date. The date it was actually decided was August 12, 2020. Okay. And basically, the uh, district court, they found the district court was correct in its finding that material favorable evidence to the defense was excluded. Okay. Um, and I think the other thing is that Kathleen Zellner portrayed Trina Bennett's statements and his state of mind as being exculpatory. Mm-hmm. And Again, I don't think that that was, I think that was incorrect in that while not everything, the kitchen sink didn't get put in, but the majority of his claims regarding his own state of mind did come in, Mm -hmm. and the jury convicted him anyway. Uh, And more likely than not, the jury convicted him because he didn't say, go away, leave me alone, don't call me anymore in any of the recorded calls. And the statements he claimed were made in the video were not there. Or when a statement was made that he claims I had this horrible reaction to, his reaction on the video was the total opposite. Like, you know, instead of when the guy said, oh, my, well, I had an ex-wife too, but she had an accident. Ha, ha, ha. His reaction wasn't, oh, my gosh. His reaction was, yeah, good for you, man. You know, so, and again, I'm speculating. I have to speculate sometimes. We all have to speculate sometimes. Um, More likely than not, why the jury convicted him in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, During all this, hullabaloo, uh, Trina Bennett died in Illinois Uh, In a hospital, although it doesn't say why or how, uh, but based on the picture and my own experience and my presumptions about her, she probably had a fatal heart attack. Okay. Um, Because I would have been, she would have been 60 years old. She was overweight. She was probably a smoker. She had probably lived a very hard life. um, Uh And she probably did not take the best care of herself. So um, so she died. Uh, Talia, as I said earlier, there's no evidence of a state post-conviction proceeding and there's no federal post-conviction proceeding. Right. I looked for her on Pacer, and she just is not there. Um, Now, in 2021, in May, I mean March, she filed a motion for appointment of counsel and apparently a state post-conviction claim. And a second identical claim was filed on April 23, 2021. Both of those were stricken as successive. 
which means there may be a state post-conviction out there, but again, there's no record of it as far as an appellate opinion or a court opinion or anything. And it doesn't help that nothing's been filed in federal court. Um, Trina will be eligible for parole in April of 2040. Right. Her release date is listed as April of 2043. Okay. So she will do pretty much every day of her sentence. Um, Now, I will say this. I will say this. Talia is kind of a dumb bitch. (laughs) And the reason I say that she's kind of a dumb bitch, because this was his ex-wife. And while she was on board with the plan, when they were arrested, she should have thrown his ass under the bus, out a deal, and testified against him. Because it was his ex-wife. Uh-huh. And that she didn't. Because he kind of sort of threw her under the bus. Because part of his testimony was, well, Trina was Talia's friend. I didn't even really know her. But see, another thing you got to look at, if he really doesn't want to do any of this stuff, why is he giving people fake names? Right, exactly. So, again, you know, she could have testified against him and offered some very powerful evidence and likely would not have been sentenced to 35 years. Uh She probably would have been sentenced to 10 to 20 upon uh, her veracity and and credibility. Um, And the saddest thing is she lost one of her kids because of this. Because the kid was with Shan when Shan was arrested. True. And then she was arrested and she was put in prison and she was convicted. So she's lost a child. Good point. Um, So she really should have um, made that deal and thrown him under the bus. Now, Mm -hmm. Shan... There is justice. It isn't perfect, but it's there. Uh, In spite of Kathleen Zellner's claims that he was so innocent and this evidence would have proved it, Shan was arrested on August 13, 2020, and a jury trial was set for November 30, 2020, to retry him. Mm -hmm. In December of 2020... Uh, a continuance was granted at the request of the state, and the matter was reset for a jury trial on March 1st, 2021. On February 3rd, 2021, Shan entered a plea agreement. Okay. 
he was sentenced to 20 years in DOC and three years supervision after he was released. He was given credit for the 10 years he'd already served. So he will be eligible for parole in July 23rd, 2027, and his release date is July 23rd, 2030. Right. So I don't know what brought about the uh, plea deal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if maybe they thought maybe he thought Talia was going to testify against him. I don't know. Maybe in light of Trina Bennett's death, there were statements of hers that could now come in through her testimony at Trina's trial. Right, right. But for someone who was innocent and would claim to have been set up. He sure jumped on He the did not waste any fucking time making a plea. Right. And oddly enough, or, or well, no, it's not odd and it's not surprising. Kathleen Zellner announced the um, the affirmation in August of 2020 by the Seventh Circuit, mm-hmm. and then it was radio silence on her Twitter feed about old Shan Fieldman. Mm-hmm. And much like Charles Erickson and Brendan Dassey, she leaves Talia Fonts to rot in Illinois State Prison um, because she can only deal with one case at a time. Right, right. And um, so uh, even though this was, like I said, I mean, this was, she argued it for Shan as though this was all a plot by Trina Bennett. And it's interesting, too. Trina didn't have any criminal charges. Trina wasn't arrested and said, hey, look, I can get you Shan Fieldman who's trying to hire him and kill his wife. You know, that that didn't happen. Um, she was disturbed, I think, by the fact that he said, well, if the kids are there, I guess they're going to have to die. Hmm. So, um, and you know, whatever, she was a character. She may have been claiming to do things she didn't do to try and, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was probably doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Claiming to do things. Cause he was, I think he was one of those people that kind of hangs with a badass crowd. So he has to pretend he's a badass too, even though he's not. Right. You know, um, because, you know, he, he he testified, you'd think he's a fucking church lady clutching his pearls at all this horrible, you know, <laughs> dreadful <laughs> situation dreadful. that he's gotten himself into or that Trina right. dragged him into. Right, um, of course. He's such an innocent part. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's another example of our, our this society's his truth, her truth, and the the fact that it's never your fault, it's always somebody else's. Of course. So, but, you know, uh, my, my thought all along from the time I first read about this case was Talia is a dumb bitch. 
Because if I'd have been Talia, when I got arrested, I would be like, oh, no, this ain't going to do. What do you want to know about him? Because I will tell you everything. Very true. So... All right, well, that is that is our show for tonight. Wow. That worked pretty well. I mean, it was a pretty successful Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just enjoy the prep time to have the day. Mm-hmm. And exactly. since I'm not sleeping and- till noon anymore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since I quit smoking, I'm falling asleep earlier but I'm also waking up and not being able to go back to sleep. Right. I can so on Saturday and what I was doing on Saturday and Sundays recently was I was getting up and then laying down and dozing with the TV on until 10:30 or 11 o'clock. Right. Right. You know, which is crazy. Because in my world before, 9 o'clock on Saturday morning didn't exist. It didn't happen because I was still sound asleep. (laughs) So, but yeah, that's our show for tonight. And um, we've got an interesting one coming up next week. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Another death penalty case. Uh, of course, it's Texas, so those are really fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be great. And then in July, I have a couple of Rodney Reed episodes that I'm trying to put together. Actually, okay. uh, it, it's going to probably be uh, July and August. Okay. Or August. I can't remember. I have to look at the calendar, at the schedule again. Uh, one, <laughs> I want to, I want to address some of the allegations made by Reed's consultant and some of the other people on social media who advocate for him. Uh, and I want to, mm-hmm. you know, address it with the people who would know whether it's got any validity or not. Um, So we'll be talking to Deborah Oliver, Stacy's older sister, Crystal, her other older sister, Crystal Halfley. Um, I am going to try and talk with Linda, Vivian, and Connie. Okay. Because each of them have been defamed by Reed's advocates. Uh, They continue to be defamed. Uh, Vivian, I know, has been harassed by Reed's consultant. Uh, And a lot of false statements have been made about them on social media and in podcasts, etc. So we're going to address some of those things. and uh, so I think it's going to be interesting. And then I'm going to talk to David Piercy, who is a about to take the California bar. Uh, 
He's a recent right. high school graduate, and he's about to take the California bar, and, and I think he's going to talk with us one week uh, after the hearings. Okay. In okay, July. Nice. Hopefully the hearings will go forward. Now, if the hearings aren't going to go forward, I think we're still going to go ahead and talk with uh, I think we're going to go ahead and address the issues because I listened to a, a thing in February that was recorded in February, and you know they're still make it's still the same song and dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe if we get opposing information out there, um, it'll balance the conversations. Right, right. Um, Hopefully. So, you know, for people who haven't decided or who don't know, I mean, the people that support Reed are always going to support him, and they're always going to find a reason to discount anything that contradicts what they believe. Um, I I engaged in an exchange in which I countered a statement made by Reed's consultant. I provided a receipt that corroborated my statement or, you know, that provided a factual basis for my statement. And the person said, how do you know that receipt deals with the dress in question? Right, right. Uh, this is the same person that, that basically refused to accept that the word Paris does not mean pregnant. Right. As I mean, well. We talked about that ad nauseum. So, um, but hopefully somebody uh, who doesn't have a dog in the fight will at least have both sides of the information. Right. Um, of course, I I think my comments have been deleted on that particular on that particular platform, um, mm-hmm. and which is incredibly cowardly. Hmm. Um, although I've had people claim to have made comments on the Facebook page and that those comments were deleted when they never made a comment. Right. So, um, which is funny that you're going to complain that a a comment you never made was deleted, but it's okay to delete my comments. Of course. So, all right. Well, why don't we wrap it up and get into Sunday? <laughs> Thank you for listening yeah. to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Sunday, June 13, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 14, State of Texas versus Robert Lynn Pruitt. 
Pruitt was convicted of the murder of correctional officer Donald Nagel and sentenced to death. For years, he sought DNA testing that he claimed would prove his innocence. When testing was finally done, the results were inconclusive and did not exonerate him. After four days of execution, Pruitt's luck ran out, and he was executed on October 12, 2017. We'll talk about the evidence against Pruitt and the course of his appellate and state post-conviction claims. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.